As a Beatle, John Lennon belonged to the world. Now, it's Lennon NYC, the intimate story of how he found himself. It's being John Lennon. John would often say, I should have been born in New York City. The greatest place on earth. When we first moved here, we actually lived in Greenwich Village, which is a sort of artsy-fartsy section of town, for those who don't know, where all the students and the would-bees live, you know? One of my biggest kicks is just going out to eat or going to the movies, you know, and doing things I couldn't do when I was, you know, in the middle of the Beatles stuff. I'm just known enough to keep my ego floating, but unknown enough to get around, which is nice. Okay. I've followed you for a long time. Thank you. Thank you. I think he needed that time. He had enough of what he did. Are you kidding? I mean, the whole world, he had to travel the whole world and, you know, all that bit. So he did it. He felt that, you know, well, he can retire and uh, be a nice daddy. And so Sean and I would spend this time together, and it was fantastic. Yeah, I looked after the baby, and I made the bread, and I was a house husband, and I'm proud of it. He's one of the most incredible people I've ever met, and one of the most vibrant, kindest, funny. Every minute that I ever spent with John, I treasure. Meet the John Lennon few new in Lennon, NYC. Just try it, okay? This week's one there was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Well, we're going to start with something that is unrelated to everything else we're going to talk about. There is a new song which features Ringo Starr and Mike Campbell. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of wanted to bring attention to this release, which is called Better Roses. Ringo's drumming on it is really, really good and needs to get a mention. It's not just his spectacular drumming. It's his extra spectacular drumming. And Mike Camel plays all sorts of guitars on this, which is fantastic. Including one which is definitely a, meant to be a mimic of George's slide. Yes, you'd almost think George was on the track. Yeah. 
if you watch the video with it, it has a Beatle tie-in, certainly. Good to see Ringo still out there doing things. Yeah. And, of course, he's getting ready to go on tour again. Let's just hope COVID stays away this time. I heard figures on it were really good this year, so. Beyond that, Louise Harrison passed away. What is there to say about Louise? She had left Liverpool by the time George was really trying to get going with the Beatles. Right. The age difference was significant. She was in Canada. I mean, you know, they were still brother and sister, and they shared parents and a certain upbringing. And Louise was certainly trying to do whatever she could for George while also raising kids. And, of course, there's George's visit to Benton, Illinois. Benton, Illinois should really do something for Louise, to be honest with you. That is where she has gotten the most notoriety bringing george over to the u.s for the first time in that trip he was kind of exposed to a taste of american culture and listening to things and so it had an impact on him and he played with a band called the four vests yes he did he sat in with somebody but (laughs) then louise showed up the next year when george was sick and she took care of him a little bit She nursed him back to health enough that he could get on the Ed Sullivan show. And then, well, after that, she went off and became a radio personality as George Harrison's sister. One of the people who used uh, their notoriety for their own benefit. But I don't think that George was bitter about that. Years later, it became an issue between them. One of the things I'm sure you're going to come across if you read the news reports is that, oh, the Harrisons have left Louise uh, high and dry and she's been living off her own wits uh, over the last few years and her house got foreclosed and all sorts of ugly nasty stories which well i'm sure there's another side to as well olivia and danny are allowed to do what they wish with the harrison estate families <laughs> family is difficult as we all know yes but this brings us around to what we're actually talking about this week We're kind of continuing on from our discussion with Alan Cozen, the business of the public versus private persona. What is the difference, and can you successfully integrate the two when talking about somebody? Beatles is an industry, and the crafting of the history and the narrative goes on and on and on, like the moon and the stars and the sun. (laughs) Uh, Well, and related to that, hot off the press, we've just got an announcement that Paul is getting ready to come. Well, getting ready is probably a relative term. This reads like the pre-announcement. Like, we're working on it. It'll be out sometime. They don't give a date for release. The project is something that they are calling Man on the Run, presented by MPL, Polygram Entertainment, and Tremolo Productions. A look at the early travails of Paul McCartney after the Beatles broke up. I don't know how much is going to be early, and I also don't know where they're going to stop. They kind of say that it's going to be about wings. Quoting from the press release, the documentary chronicles the arc of Paul's peerless solo career 
from the one-man band lo-fi recording prototype of his self-titled solo debut to the pastoral bliss of Ram, to the formation of Wings and its classic albums, including Band on the Run, Venus and Mars, At the Speed of Sound, Wings Over America, London Town, and more. London Town and more. Are they going to stop at James's birth, or are they going to go all the way up to 1979 and presumably end with the pot bust? After London Town, there's Back to the Egg. That's it, isn't it? And the, the tour. Right. And uh, Wings, while not working under the name Wings per se, did stick around for a significant amount of what would become the Tug of War recordings. You know, they were there through 80 and 81. The director of this project, Paul, is taking a hint from Peter Jackson and his success with Get Back is Morgan Neville. I'm not going to make a crack, but I'll let you make your own. Gee, Paul has hired the guy who made a success out of the Mr. Rogers story to tell his story. (laughs) I'm sorry. There are just too many cracks in my head. (laughs) (laughs) We'll let the audience make their own, but I did have to bring it up. Right. I like you. I like you, my dear. Thank you very much for telling me that. He was radical. I know everyone says that, but he was radical. He had a singular vision of kindness and love. There's this, this thing about McCartney controlling the narrative of his story. And that's understandable, but I don't know that he shows a desire to show the ugly side. We're not going to have the tales of Mrs. Denny Sywell being called a drunk in this documentary. And I mean, the other thing is, from what they're implying, this is going to be a theatrical thing. How in the world are you going to do 10 years and even, you know, a two and a half hour film? And I don't think it's going to be that. I'm just surprised he didn't make it a musical. (laughs) Well, the good thing is they have apparently opened up the archives and this may well be related to what's going on with you know his book of photos. He had a bunch of other stuff that he has yet to give us. And I was like, oh, I'm going to stick it in this film. Right. No one should get me wrong. I love Paul McCartney. And he's doing what he thinks he should do. But we're at a point now where the scholarship of the Beatles history is kind of out there. And I'm not sh- too sure how this impacts that. We talk about Alan Cozen. There's 700 pages for 1969 through, you know, 1973, 1974. So, again, two hours, how are you going to do it? I mean, he spent more time than that in Wingspan. Right. And, you know, Wingspan certainly was beneficial. There was a lot of interesting things that came out of Wingspan, stuff that told us really what was in the archives. But... I don't think anybody really thinks that, oh, this is a great telling of the Paul and Wing story. And I'm not sure that we should expect that from Paul McCartney because he does have an interest in presenting his narrative. I think probably the most important thing we may get out of this, and again, we're talking about something that we haven't seen and we likely won't see for uh, months and months and months. When do you think this thing is coming out? Why do you think they're making the announcement now, incidentally? A tease, for sure. I mean, I'm slightly reminded of the one, two, three stuff, which, uh, you know, we got some hint of, and he made just a very brief, this is coming, and then it showed up about three months later. But I don't think we're looking at that kind of time scale here. Yeah. And it's impossible to guess. I, I don't know. 
stuff. It, yeah, it's just here it is, and, and also sticking it out literally a week after he announced his book. It's like, really? <laughs> right. Don't forget about me. <laughs> I'm still out here. Or maybe he's just trying to keep all those old folks alive. <laughs> <laughs> this is something to look forward to. Exactly. This is coming. Hold on. Well, it could be a humanitarian. <laughs> the, and there were photos of Paul and Ringo together at an Adidas party put on by Stella. And they're having lots of fun. I saw a clip. See Ringo and Paul dance. And the clip is like six seconds of them kind of moving. It's like, really? The Ringo and Paul dancing together. <laughs> and I clicked on it. <laughs> But Paul looks a little bit uh, sloshed, not hugely, but a little bit. <laughs> and Ringo also looks a little bit out of it, but I do believe that Ringo is clean. So Yeah. So it could have just been it was that late in the evening. <laughs> At their age, 9, 30, 10 o'clock, that starts to be that late in the evening. We're, we're getting up there soon enough. Yeah, well, I, and I'm, I'm much closer to that than you. And I don't know that many people of that age who are knocking them back. It's just not something that happens a lot maybe because the ones who do don't reach that age <laughs> right so. but but still i mean you know a couple glasses of wine maybe an herbal cigarette or two and, a jazz well, cigarette at least on paul's side i could see that that brings us into a film that we did actually get to see i used to like it a lot more but then 10 years ago i was still very deep in the uh playboy interview mythos and i still believe a lot of what john yoke is saying in the playboy interview the full book length version of the playboy interview i just realized that this has been adjusted a little bit to tell a story it's the greatest place on earth and if this is rome i want to live in rome you gotta live they're trying to scare them into leaving the united states just one thing was going wrong after another, and John was really going into a dark place. I come back to New York because I want to get home to Yoko, and I also want to get myself out of L.A. and out of the bubble. He seems to have gotten something that he never had before. Meet the John Lennon few new in Lennon, NYC. Just try it, okay? Made for PBS, and at the time it was advertised as being one of the most revealing looks at John Lennon in New York City. He's in New York City at times. It is pretty good. It's got some good things in it and some not common interviews. Um, so, well, And they did new interviews with lots and lots of interesting people. A lot of Elephant's Memory, the whole Double Fantasy band, Elton sat down with them, mm -hmm. Jack Douglas and... Bob Green. Just lots and lots of interesting figures. Yeah. And they actually put those out on iTunes, and the full-length interviews are still available if you want to go and look for them. The film starts with John in 1980 recording. I just want sashimi. <laughs> yeah. Kicho, 45th Street. Look up in the phone book. Kicho. Say who it's for. Yoko Ono, not me. Say it's for Yoko. I don't know, otherwise I don't get it. I want just sashimi, tuna, tomato, and sashimi. Just give me that raw fish. Sushi. <laughs> That's really good. That gives us a glimpse into what it was like at the record plant. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, there's 
You go into the record plant, I guess you smell raw, raw fish. You smell sushi and you smell uh, herbal jazz cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> I still find that kind of fascinating. And of course, uh, even then we had things like the Heart Play record, which was just kind of Johnny Yoko talking and being interviewed. So we'd heard bits and pieces of that, but this documentary was the first time we got a whole lot of that. And of course, in the ensuing years, we've gotten hours and hours of that. You know, I've got like 20, 25 hours worth of double fantasy session. Right. Well, I think the, the film basically opens up to say at this point, he was a normal guy, happy with himself. I think Jack Douglas tells a story about his coat. We were at Hit Factory. He comes in. He's got the silver coat with the fur collar. He said, look at this. What do you think of this? I said, it's nice. He said, it's the greatest ever. I said, okay, John. I said, no, he said, let me tell you why it's amazing. He said, you know Charavari? I said, sure. He said, I walked into Charavari. I walked into the store. People were in there. I walked around. I picked stuff up. I tried a few things on. I went into the dressing room. Yeah. He said, then I saw this jacket. I liked it. I tried it on. It fit me. Yeah. He said, I took out this. Uh-huh, my American Express card, yeah. I went over, I paid for it myself. And then I left. No must, no fuss. The freedom, finally had freedom. That was New York, that's why you loved it. Just doing the, the normal things. So it's that same kind of story of John baking bread. He was doing normal things and happy with that. This part feels pretty real. It doesn't feel too much like they're trying to shape it into a story. No. I can believe that it was actually like that at the time. Right. They then travel back in time to Bank Street. They skip over the time that they spent in the hotel, which uh, surprised me a little bit. They spent, what, a good month there. Right. And it was in New York. Yeah, at the St. Regis. Which would happen to fit in with the theme of this film he was in new york there's lots of talking and there's that whole clock soundtrack thing we've got a full cd's worth of them in this hotel room Well, and if they wanted to go back even further, you know, you got you got the Lennon trip in 68, the Apple trip. That was also them in New York, John in particular. That would have been the first time that he really got out and got a chance to walk around Central Park. 
<laughs> right. But if you really wanted to go back, there would be Central Park in 1964. So the Beatles surrounded by police and photographers, did they really get a chance to look around the park? You see the three of them again, just the boatloads of photos. You know, I would have included a little bit of that, particularly because you got those photos of the Beatles in front of the Dakota, you know, with the Dakota in the background. There you go. Foreshadowing. <laughs> Here's what's coming. <laughs> right. I don't complain with the way they opened the film. I just would have slid this in there. <laughs> You know, a little montage of New York and then a montage of 68. Right. And there, there's a quote um, of John talking about his love for New York and that it was like Rome. He loved New York. And so, therefore, you know, he had previous experiences in New York and it would have been nice to bring some of that in. It wasn't like he never knew New York before Yoko. And perhaps if you were going to include that, you would include some of Yoko's experiences in New York. Well, there you go. Um, but a lot of this was to show some of the studio interaction, and so that really wouldn't have fit that. They just kind of say, oh, okay, John and Yoko came to New York. There's just a little tiny bit of Yoko saying how she was never really comfortable in England, and you know, England was so different, and how she wanted to come back to the States. And, well, all right, but that isn't specifically my home is in new york city and I'd, I'd like to at least spend some time there go back and forth between or something well during the course of this there's some footage of john hanging out what looks like to me in a basement with andy warhol and alan ginsburg and some of those folks and the voiceover talks about how he kind of wanted to get into the world that yoko had been in when she was there. So it would have been nice to sort of have that. They haven't really explained that to this point. Right. So really where the film starts is the Bank Street apartment uh, in Greenwich Village. And it is surprisingly very much the same. I got a little chill when I was there. This has now been, oh, four or five years. But I went down and I took a look at the apartment and the outside. And it just hasn't changed. Right. You can almost feel the presence of the Lennons, and to a certain extent, Elephant's memory, as you walk around in Greenwich Village, it's still very much the 70s, not <laughs> necessarily in style, but in feel. New York changes very slowly. Well, unless you're talking about Times Square. And very fast, too. Yeah. Some of the neighborhoods don't seem to change ever. Greenwich Village kind of lives on being the uh, artistic sort of bohemian end of town but you know you go over to mulberry street and it's still the old italian neighborhood a lot of those neighborhoods just don't change well and even hell's kitchen but we're talking more about new york city than they do in the film <laughs> right <laughs> that then leads into uh, elephant's memory in particular we got uh, gary van syok and he talks about how they first sort of came into john and yoko's orbit two three four it was Jerry Rubin that introduced us to John Lennon. He just showed up one night. He wasn't invited. He just came in and he said, I'd really like to meet the band. And my jaw just dropped. You know, there was a bunch of bands that were like movement bands. They were very in tune with the politics of the day. And 
elephant's memory was one of them you know like like the motor city five and that sort of thing i had never really made that association i mean i've heard the elephant's memory album i've heard some of the stuff they did before john and yoko it didn't seem like sometime in new york city it didn't seem an overtly political presentation it, it could have been you know more of what they did you know playing benefits and rallies and it wasn't that it, it reflected in the music they played other than the fact that it was kind of raw and energetic but they played a lot of the events of the day and they make that point in the film but where's david peel <laughs> stone somewhere <laughs> <laughs> for all that i don't care for either him or his music or his politics it's like he's an important part of the story right and you know they just kind of slid right past him yeah he doesn't even appear in this picture we're getting ready to go into the whole u.s versus john lennon bit and the thing that's always stunned me is they put a photo of david peel in john's file and labeled it as john lennon there is a similar look for sure that sort of uh, falls back to the discussion we were talking about earlier you know where yoko was talking about the British press, and John goes on about... But, I mean, the British press actually called Yoko ugly in the papers, and I've never seen that about any woman or man, even if it was, if a person is ugly. You don't normally sort of say it in the paper, you know, that ugly woman, and, and she's not ugly, and if she was, you wouldn't be so mean. They, they even say attractive about the most awful-looking people, just to be kind. <laughs> That's the truth. The order is, seems a little shuffled here. Sometimes when you're compiling sort of, these sort of things, it's hard to be chronological you're making a point the thing that some of this was around was how comfortable they felt in new york at that point it was different than their life in london and also that the u.s media was a very different thing from the british media right it was going to take them another couple of years to completely turn on them <laughs> and their good buddy Geraldo rivera shows up yeah but he, you know he tells the story of they contacting him he didn't contact them the idea for the one-to-one -one concert came from Yoko Ono. I was a local newsman, and in January 1972, I get this call from Yoko. She tells me that she and John had been watching my coverage of the awful conditions at the Willowbrook State School for the Mentally Retarded, and that they wanted to get involved, and maybe they could do something. Then we get some footage of John and Yoko in New York, what is now very poignant footage of them on the ferry, and you can see the Twin Towers being built in the background. So this kind of leads into... The politics, the politics was probably done better, certainly more complete in the U.S. versus John Lennon. Yeah. In that film, they didn't have to drive to uh, double fantasy. <laughs> you know, they, they can cover it all. This, exact, we've got a lot to cover, so they don't really go into that as well. Tom Hayden is actually one of the really good talking heads we get here. We're getting to a point here where I accepted the myth for a long time of the rally at Ann Arbor, that they had this big rally and John performed at it. And then three days later, he, uh, John Sinclair was out. John Sinclair was out. And that that was somehow John's doing his influence. And I'm thinking, did John really have that much influence on the Supreme court of Michigan? And really why credit him? Why not? They were released because of the, the support of Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen. To credit Lennon, I mean, when you really get down to it, the oral arguments for the charges were done a month earlier. Then you had the rally. But the day before the rally, 
the Michigan House completed uh, legislation to reduce the penalties, and that's why they let him out. Well, and you almost have to wonder whether the people organizing the rally didn't kind of plan it that way. They had a date. Yeah, with a cause, you you know, it's like, yeah, we're going to have this rally. They didn't know what was going to go down the day before. It's just that afterwards, the narrative was somehow John's participation in this made all the difference. And I, and I wonder, well, how did that narrative get going? Is, is, that, I mean, is that Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, you know, playing him in, in a well, way it's like and, this? And- This is your doing. You should lead us. (laughs) And between John Wiener and Tom Hayden, they actually tell an interesting version of this story. You know, uh, John Wiener is saying that the anti-war movement was exhausted and despairing. That's some key language there, I think. And that is surrounded by Tom Hayden saying that it was Jerry and Abby trying to seize control of the platform, seize control of the entertainment world, and that they were actively trying to recruit John Lennon. So, I mean, that falls in exactly with what you're saying. It's like, okay, these guys didn't know whether they could radicalize Lennon, but they only had to radicalize him enough. It's just their fortune that John fell for it. Right. Yeah. I was kind of insulted by Tom Hayden, implying that the fact that they were stoned made everyone believe all this. And it's like, you know, that's too easy. <laughs> Because that's not necessarily how it works. Now, I've got a question for you. They show Rennie Davis at the time at the rally saying, we need John. They're implying that he's saying we need John Lennon, but is he maybe saying we need John Sinclair? To be released? Yeah, it could be. A little bit of deceptive editing. We need John to help us rise up like a hurricane to sweep this man, Nixon, and his war makers into the sea. We need John. (laughs) Right. It's interesting, the people who were there, five of the seven defendants from the Chicago 7 were there. People forget that Stevie Wonder was uh, performed at that rally. And Roberta Flack. And Roberta Flack. And that John Sinclair had been the manager of the MC5. And John and Yoko didn't go on until like very late. Yeah. I've seen the whole thing. The whole thing is out there in decent quality. The the TV master is out there. And this was 71? Yeah. I would agree with John Wiener that the movement was exhausting. I mean, it, I mean, it had like so much of the movement there are people getting violent and that's not really what a lot of people believed in and people were being radicalized and so there was a kind of an exhaustion about it all and so that is used to bring in the government's case hoover saying they've got to be stopped strom Thurmond, deportation would be a strategic countermeasure right well, they were worried because all the people who had brought us the 1968 riots at the Democratic Convention were announcing that they were going to the Republican Convention. And so the government felt obligated to do something about it. And so here they talk of Jerry Rubin bringing in the Elephant's Memory tape. They also mentioned that Elephant's Memory was a band that played at all of these rallies and was a Adam uh, Ippolito says that they were known as kind of a political kind of street band. So, okay. Uh, it was interesting to hear right. them talking about uh, this tape and 
just a little bit of the studio sessions for woman is the right. You had to catch them in the first two hours of recording because they'd be too messed up after that. But we had to catch them the first two hours of the recording because they were never, never land after that. Uh, anybody got some grass? I think you understand. A completely <laughs> different world, both from 1967 and 1987. Yeah. <laughs> so then we get into the whole issue of the upcoming single from Sometime in New York City. Which, of course, has a word in its title that no one is comfortable using. There's a, an interview with a couple of the musicians who are like, uh, all of a sudden I realized we're going to perform this song and that word is in it. <laughs> and we're going to get some pushback. But it's interesting to listen to his reasoning and the reasoning of the people around him. This is a song about the women's problem. It was written by Yoko and I. And the song is called Woman is the Nigger of the World. And obviously there was a few people that reacted strangely to it, but usually they were white and male. Because a lot of stations were saying, well, we're not going to play this because it says nigger and a white man shouldn't say it. And then the chairman of the Black Caucus, that great guy, Congressman Ron Dellums, Democrat California says here, he came out with this, which is fantastic. If you define niggers as someone whose lifestyle is defined by others, whose opportunities are defined by others, whose role in society is defined by others, then good news. You don't have to be black to be a nigger in this society. Most of the people in America are niggers. Well, and then they show the clip of them where they actually explain what the point is and how the black movement at the time was saying, you know, right on, brother, not to go too stereotypical there. Dick Cavett was required by ABC to put forward. John and Yoko got into something which ABC feels may develop into, in their words, a highly controversial issue. So they wrote this thing, and I went in and taped it in order to retain the song. In the next segment, John Lennon gives his reasons for writing the song and for using the word. It, it was kind of a, a tepid apology or a disclaimer, basically. The pushback from the TV audience was more against that disclaimer than it was against the performance of the song because John gave a really strong explanation and defense of the use of the word. It makes sense in what John was trying to say. And Dick Cavett, not just here, but in several places, he goes out and he likes to talk about this was his example of being beaten down by the man and he regrets it. Yes. And apparently it was something that he had to do post-appearance. They had already appeared, and then ABC came to Dick Cavett and said, well, you need to do this. And Cavett was kind of offended. About 600 protests did come in. None of them about the song. All of them about, quote, that mealy-mouthed statement you forced Dick to say before the show. Don't you believe we are grown up? Oh, God, it was... It was wonderful in that sense. It gave me hope for the Republic. He wanted to be the counterculture talk show host. Everybody else has Carson, and then the kids have me. That is then followed by uh, a bit more of uh, Leon Wilde. If you really want to read about Leon's story, there's a book on uh, the U.S. versus John Lennon. Leon wrote a book, and that's, well, not quite as fascinating as Jay Bergen's book. Uh, it doesn't have direct transcripts. It does tell the story of the whole Lennon case and everything he saw from a legal standpoint, and in fact, how he was able to set precedent with John's case. Good read. 
followed by the paranoia, and you see a lot of Lennon being followed, not just Lennon, but Lennon and his associates, even people like Bob Gruen, having their phones tapped and being followed. Yeah, if you ever watch John's appearance, when they talk about being followed or being tapped, there's a disbelieving laughter in the audience. I mean, it's not loud or overwhelming, but there are people who are like, that's ridiculous. When it first started, I was followed in the car and my phone was tapped. And I think they wanted me to know to scare me, and I was scared, paranoid. But you can imagine John Lennon says his phone's tapped and there's men following in the car. And uh, people thought I was crazy then, you know. I mean, they do anyway, but I mean, more so, you know, Lennon. Oh, you big-headed little maniac, right? Who's going to follow you around? Well, what do they want? You know, that's what I'm saying. What do they want? That our government would be following John Lennon. Nobody really knew about the enemies list or what that meant. No. Not at all. And that's the terrible thing about it. They were going through it. They knew what the reality was. But on the whole, nobody really believed them at the time. To make a really nice bit of film moment here, you got Leon Wilde saying, well, I did advise them to lay low, but, you know, this is John and Yoko. Right. Which then leads into the next round. And the chronology is a little bit funny again, because the one-to-one concert and what was going on around that, John was really almost stepping away from the radicals at that point. Yeah. Although I think that that was more in keeping with Leon Wilde's advice because he certainly continued his interest in politics. It's just that he wasn't hanging out with Rubin and Hoffman anymore. And they were having their own problems. We get Geraldo. We get some of that story, but not the whole Willowbrook story. I would really like to see a full documentary on, you know, Willowbrook and the whole one-to-one concert, you know, how that came about, not just the footage of the concerts, but the story around that. I think there's a lot more than we've ever been told about what happened there. That would be good. We had the, uh, the first time we get a little bit of Elephant's memory being starstruck that they're playing with him and they finally notice he's that guy. He's the Beatle. <laughs> right, right. They also make the supposition that this was supposed to be the first show of a tour. I don't believe that. I think he thought of uh, the one to one concert as a rehearsal for the world tour. And the only way to get around all the green card thing was to do benefit concerts. It could be one of those things of the talk that goes around that keeps people there. You know, I wonder whether the rumor made it out. I mean, we now know that John had asked Paul and Wings to come over and play with them at the one-to-one concert. Do you think that the audience had any inkling that that was ever even maybe a possibility? And it's like, oh, we got to make sure that we're there for this show because this might happen. Hard to say. The rumors of possibilities were always going around. But I don't know how seriously they were taken and two, how many people really speculated on that sort of thing. Fair enough. We then go into the night Nixon won. And this is the one bit of really good new reporting. I mean, I heard bits and pieces of the story, but this is the first time I think I heard this story in full. Yeah, well, certainly was the first time I heard Yoko talk about it. I think, you know, what happened there... I totally understand, you know, that she just uh, just pulled one girl and went into the next room and started um, started to make love, I suppose. And there's big noise and everything. And um, 
And one of the uh, elephant's memory guys, Stan, Stan was very sweet. He just put Bob Dylan's <laughs> record on and sort of boosted up. But it just didn't do any good. But it was that kind of night. And I felt very sad for myself. I didn't like it. But at the same time, I understood what he was going through. Briefly, the night Nixon won, John got beyond sloshed. And, well, he uh, took one of the young women into the bedroom and proceeded to... Uh, uh, Beetle well, her. Be <laughs> Beetle her very loudly. You can just imagine the humiliation that Yoko was going through at that point because it was very loud. This is followed by a series of photos which are still pretty rare photos and this was the first time I believe I had seen them was in this documentary. John in the long coat sort of begging to Yoko. Yeah, I heard about them and I've seen them more since but this was the first time I really saw them. So the sort of immediately jumps into the not New York City section of the dock. Uh, John and <laughs> May Pang in Los Angeles. The lost weekend. May gets to say a little bit. Before we left New York, I remember John coming into me and saying, I'm ready. I said, I looked at him. I said, what do you mean? He goes, book the studio. You know, normally when we see May, we see May with exactly one line, which is, you know, that weekend wasn't so lost. Right. And then they just sort of zoom right past it. At one point, Jim Keltner mentions how cool things were. And John was just a very strong force of a personality. So when he spoke, you listened, you know. You could be in, a, in the other room and you hear his voice. He's just such a distinctive voice, singing and just talking. You know, that John was very light. It's really fascinating. He talks about how John would write in the studio, that what he knew coming in was really the chord structure. As we know, John liked to sing on every take, even though he knew it was just a scratch vocal. But apparently part of the reason he did that was to get the words right. Yeah. And I mean, we see that in Get Back as well. Yes. That clearly was a way he wrote. And I've read that he wrote words first and then came up with melodies to fit his words. I just think there's a variety of ways he wrote. But he did kind of keep it open so that he could change things at the last moment. Then we get the footage of Tony King dressed as the queen and John Lennon ballroom dancing with him. Always, always funny stuff. And Tony King has a new bio out, by the way. And you can go and read more if you want to know about Queen and Elton and his time with John Lennon. There you go. May saying that we had a lot of visitors. May, that wasn't your house. <laughs> I think John's name was the one that was on the rental agreement, but it wasn't really their house either. You know, it was meant as the house for the Hollywood vampires, for everyone that was kind of around at the time, because they wanted to make sure that they could get Keith up in the morning. I think with some of these things, answers or perspectives could be given, and they're not answering specific questions. So when... She talked about them having a lot of visitors. It might not have been an answer to it being their house. You have to make the questions and answers line up. Yeah. And again, they are certainly trying to tell us. I'm not accusing her of lying. Right? I didn't think that either. You know, <laughs> didn't even remember. I thought it was our house, but who knows? May find a way to get your doc released. <laughs> Only a small fraction of the people who want to see it got a chance to see it last year. Because you only streamed it for three days. 
Well, there you go. We move on with the story of the rock and roll sessions, although they talk a lot about Spectre, but they don't talk about him running away with the tapes. Right. Which is just a little bit weird. That's kind of the whole turning point of the thing. Yes. <laughs> and we also don't talk about the Pussycats album. I realize that a lot of this is kind of down to time. It's it's the same thing that I was complaining about earlier. How are we going to tell 10 years of McCartney's life in you know, a two, two and a half, three hour film, it's just not going to work. You got to make decisions and those decisions are going to be criticized by somebody, maybe me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when you consider that the Beatles anthology is how many hours? Well, and get back is how many hours right. and we're still not happy with it. Right. But the story of Spectre and the, uh, five gallon bottle of vodka going around the studio that that's kind of horrifying actually <laughs> yeah and that's at the rock and roll sessions john would have this jug of vodka it's a i've never seen it one since then that big i i guess they still make them i thought of it as a joke you know it had to be like a five gallon bottle of vodka and john would have that thing sitting right next to him right next to his guitar they don't talk about the pussycat sessions where who knows what else was going around. Yeah. We know what was going around on the Toot and the Snore sessions. Keltner's quote, alcohol and John was not a good idea ever. <laughs> you know, we you kind of get that. John was a lot of things. John could be a really good, really nice, really kind fella, but you get him too drunk. Ooh. Right. Not someone you want to be around. And mean, apparently. We get the Kotex story, although they tell it right, because that story is always told wrong so many different ways. We're at this restaurant, Lost on Larrabee, drinking. And uh, John decided to go into the women's room. And so we thought it was funny. And so he went in the ladies' room, and he came out with a Kotex on it, taped on his forehead. He just stuck it to his head. He just thought it was funny. He came out, and I went, oh, my God. And so we're laughing hysterically. And we're egging him on, like, you know, oh, that's great, you gotta keep it on. And then we go into the troubadour, and, and because it's John, they didn't question it, you know. And uh, it was like a normal, nice evening until he he stood up and he, and he said a couple of things that, uh, you know, are unsayable here. I'm sitting there drinking my Diet Coke, and there's this commotion about three rows over. It was one of these long tables you're sitting at. And uh, all of a sudden, people get up and say, that's John Lennon. Do you know who I am? Yeah, you're some a-hole with a Kotex on his forehead. <laughs> Never stops being funny. That is always conflated with the Tommy Smothers story, and they're not the same. Right. It's like it was all on one night. <laughs> and it wasn't. Then they tell what is actually probably the highlight of loving John, the story of John Lennon at Lou Adler's house, just after a horrible, horrible night of getting drunk that apparently he gained more strength as he drank more, that it took four or five guys to actually hold John down. Crazy alcoholic rage. He smashed up a bunch of the furniture and gold records and things. So the film uses this as an excuse to say that, well, John needed Yoko. And, you know, what do we believe about that? May certainly has her version of things. I think that John did probably talk to Yoko pretty much every day during the last weekend. And they say that in the film as well. Uh, I don't know, because that doesn't mesh with 
Yoko's feelings of, hey, <laughs> you go there. We don't need to do this. So speaking every day really contradicts that. So I don't know whether that really went on or not. I mean, the whole story of the reunion is also a little bit, shall we say, romanticized here. <laughs> right. We spent a good 20, 25 minutes of this documentary, of a roughly two-hour documentary in Los Angeles. Right. But this is when they go back to New York. Right, to finish up the rock and roll tapes. Which, as we learn, but we don't actually learn in the documentary, is that Phil had run off with the tapes. They couldn't do anything. So while John was getting clean, he wrote the next album, and that turned out to be Walls and Bridges. That was Morris's excuse for suing John, was uh, he was told that John's going to record your songs for the next record. The next record being rock and roll, and well... The next record ended up being Walls and Bridges because they didn't have the tapes. Right. And what was the reason for putting Yaya at the very end of it? Just because Julian played it. They had it around. I don't think that was a middle finger at Morris, but it, it certainly probably would have appealed to John's sense of humor. But it would put royalties into Morris's pocket. But the agreement was that John would record three Morris Levy tunes. And even if you include Yaya, yeah, yeah, there's, there's not two more of them on there. It might have been a delaying tactic. Another free plug for Jay Bergen's book. Uh, <laughs> you know, All of those details are in there. But we do now get John coming back to New York. Footage that they don't have here that uh, I really would have liked to have seen them put in is uh, John and Harry, uh, they did a March of Dines thing in Central Park. And there is film footage of that, and none of that's here. That would have made a, a real nice addition to this. And it happens to be in New York. John Lennon in Central Park. This took place April 28th, 1974. My big brothers and their friend were there to film and photograph John and Harry Nilsson in Central Park. And John was there for nine minutes. <laughs> We do get the, the whatever gets you through the night promo footage, but I mean, that's all staged anyway. Right. The the infamous John pointing down at the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on the road marquee. A little bit from Dennis Elsis, which remains one of the really cool interviews John did around that time. Elsis was pretty young and John was cool with him. It made an impact on him. He talks about stories that we often hear about Paul that I'm sitting here and I'm looking down this close on a live beetle. Right. And that he almost just couldn't speak. And John just instantly, okay, I know what's going on. I'll calm him down and I'll get him into the mode that he needs to be in. <laughs> right. It's a cool little interview that talk about immigration. And a lot of the quotes you get from John talking about New York come from this interview. Yeah. He says something about maybe if they just banned me from Ohio or something. You know, um, and I thought, well, maybe he knew that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was going to be there. <laughs> and, of course, he ends that with, I don't harm anybody. I've got a bit of a loud mouth, that's all. So, you know, while this is going on, they don't mention Kyoko either. And, well, that's another big piece of what's going on with John. Maybe a little bit less about John in New York City, but... Still, they have long since deviated from, oh, this is going to be about John Lennon and New York City. Right. But it doesn't really purport to be a biography of John Lennon. You know, everything in this life. It's supposed to be about his experiences in New York. I don't know whether I can give you that one. No, okay. There's a quote that was in this that I made note of. Yeah, it was sad when Charlie Chaplin 
I know. finally came back to America. That's why I don't want to happen to me. Years. Years. Gosh. I'd hate that. You know, they wheel me on at 60 and give me a plaque for yesterday. And Paul wrote it, you know. I mean, I can just see it, you know. I don't want that. I'd like to live here. You know, I don't harm anybody. I thought that was hilarious. First of all, 60? <laughs> but, yeah, give me a plaque for yesterday. As we discussed from two of us, yesterday was a sore point with John Lennon. I like the quote that Elton was wearing things that would make Lady Gaga blush. <laughs> right. Then they kind of go into the business of the reunion and... Did John invite her? Did John not invite her? We know John certainly sent her the flower. And uh, one of the things I really like from those photos that they have, you can see John wearing the matching flower. Right. It's right there up front in his outfit. And I believe this was before the footage we have of that evening, which while not complete, we do have probably about a minute and a half of a, uh, uh, John and Elton doing whatever gets you through the night. And it sounds pretty good. We have the recording of the whole song, but yeah. uh, you can just imagine what that evening would have been like. Then we get Yoko saying something that, well, I don't know how much I completely believe. I was nearly in tears, but I didn't, you know, I held my tears because I never saw John be so... I don't know, there's something about it that touched me. I thought it's too bad I still love him. <laughs> Whether he invited her, I don't know. But there she was, and there we, that, that was it. John was back with Yoko. That's just too much of a quote for me, you know? I can see that. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not saying it's false. I'm not saying that she didn't have some of those feelings, but, well, especially considering what we know, that they would try to work things out after that, but it would take, oh, another six weeks before he got back into the Dakota. Right. Isn't that quote from when she was talking about the pajamas? I think that actually came uh, a little bit afterwards. That all kind of goes together. I was uh, setting myself up for a new life in a sense that one day I went to this shop for his vintage clothes. There's a beautiful silk uh, pajama, a men's pajama from 1920s or 30s or something. So European looking. Well, I better buy this. I thought the kind of guy that I would meet would fit into this <laughs> romantic idea. And when John came back, do you want to try? <laughs> and he fit in totally. And I said, oh, my God. And so it was just a kind of interesting perspective. Like, she was planning on moving on. Here's the reality, which... How much does it match with what we get in this film? I, I have my doubts, or at least some doubts. I, I, I don't doubt that John decided that he wanted to be with Yoko and that they agreed enough for him to come back and that they lived a good life together in the Dakota, but it's all just a little bit too convenient the way it's presented. Right. I mean, particularly the myth, the legend, which was, and Yoko came backstage and that's when we fell in love. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, John, it didn't quite work like that. But, I mean, you know, as I've also said, you know, I think May Pang is completely uh, 
up her own ego when she talks about, oh, yo, Yoko found a way to get John back. No, it didn't work like that. Or maybe it did. You know, everybody has their own perspective. Was Yoko moving on? Did May think this was possibly a lot more permanent? Just kind of based on what you know and what you feel. Well, it's back to what's the good story. I mean, the good story is the one they tell. The good story is, oh, oh, yeah, he invited me. I saw him. We connected right then and there. I came backstage, and that was that. Exactly. He got her pregnant very quickly. And I, I, I do believe you know that version that they went to an herbalist, not an herbal jazz cigarettist, but uh, <laughs> an herbalist who you know gave them some herbs and said, do this, don't do any drugs, sleep, and take care of your bodies in a month you'll be pregnant and she was right but i mean that's kind of deviating from the story they're trying to tell us here and that also doesn't have that much to do with in new york city although it did all happen in new york city yeah right so so that that then leads into the house husband years right it was was just kind of an amazing thing that he, he got his green card it was his birthday and sean was born all within a day what a coinkadink. Some people will claim that Yoko had the C-section to time it that way. I don't believe that either. Yoko did have to have the surgery to deliver Sean. But given everything else we know about Yoko's history with pregnancy, a C-section was probably the smartest decision by far. Absolutely. She had a history. So it probably was a medical decision. Now, could you choose when that would happen? You could, but... Yeah, I kind of go with unlikely that they forced it to happen on that day. Considering why they were going to have a C-section, you know, the health of the baby and the mother, then playing around with it would be a silly thing. What we get is we get a little bit of the house husband stuff, but not that much. We get the footage of them out at the beach. And uh, the story of John teaching Sean how to swim. Cute dad stuff. Yeah. And great dad stuff. Oh, for sure. For sure. Particularly considering his relationship with Julian. You know, I think that the fact that he uh, embraced this is a lovely thing. I think mentally he needed a break. And he was also looking towards domesticity and to do something that he hadn't done. And I think he did probably feel some guilt over what there was with Julian. I mean, we also get those photos of Julian coming in and staying at the Dakota. Stories we've heard in other places. You know, that was still a pretty momentous thing for Julian. He yeah. still talks about it. But, I mean, considering how little time he got to spend with his dad between 1972 and 1980, you know, I, I saw him four times, and this was one of them. I, I can understand that. Then it just kind of goes right into the 1980s stuff. For the New York side of things, I would have liked to have seen them talk about his sailing lessons, bring those guys in, and you know, maybe you don't need to talk about the Bermuda trip, but just mention that it happened. Yeah, that wasn't really part of this at all. For John, that was both a 
big piece of living in New York, the fact that he could go and learn how to sail, that they could go to the country and they could stay there, and that he could learn how to sail and be doing the dad stuff, that was pretty important to him. Yeah. And that's, while not New York City, that is certainly New York State, and it is the living in New York thing. So, you know, we go back into the studio. Again, we don't get the impact of John returning to public life. That's a very New York thing. We get a little bit of that footage that they filmed of him you know, walking around in Central Park, but we don't even get that much of that, the woman uh, and the guy playing basketball. I don't think we get the guy playing basketball here. No, I don't think we do. John, let a you autograph? Yeah. Hey, I got to shake your hand, man. What's up, man? I can't believe I met you. I swear to God. How come what are the Beatles getting back together? Tomorrow, tomorrow. You're full of it. What are you getting back together? I love your album. I like your blue album. Hey, what's that guy? We get some of that footage, but not a lot of it, which is also kind of a shame. We get interviews with each member of the band and Robert Hilburn, who does tell a really nice story about... Uh, uh, John pulling him in and, and say, hey, hey, you want some <laughs> contraband that I have? And it turns out to be chocolate. That was funny. With all the interviews, they interview Hugh McCracken. And at one point, John kind of pulls him in and acknowledged that he had played with McCartney on Ram and said, you know, it was pretty good performances. And then tells him, you know, working on Ram was just an audition to play with me. <laughs> yeah, although that was actually from the Christmas record. From, oh, that's right. So, I mean, that's when that actually happened. He may have told that story here because, well, that's this is that, when he enters the, that's when enters he enters the, the picture. picture. Yeah, yeah. We get a little bit of David Geffen. We get David Geffen telling the famous story about, I convinced them that uh, this should be a John and Yoko record, and I was 100% behind it. Right. Hmm. Then we get Jack Douglas telling what we know is a bald-faced lie. You know, Jack Douglas comes on and says, Oh, well, I didn't know until late in the process that they wanted this to be alternating tracks back and forth. Well, <laughs> Jack Douglas has also said, well, the first time that I ever heard about it, Yoko invited me up to Long Island. John was in Bermuda at the time, and we talked for a while. Yoko handed me a stack of tapes saying, we've got an idea. If you want to do a John and Yoko record, I've got a tape of John's stuff and I'll give it to you then. From the very first day, he knew that this was going to be a John and Yoko record. Yeah. I think that at one point, those people who knew it was going to be a John and Yoko record thought it would be like John on one side and Yoko on the other. Yeah, but I mean, apparently that was part of the discussion that Yoko and then John and Yoko, when they got John on the phone, laid out to him when they were just trying to decide whether they wanted him to be the producer. This was before they went into the studio and before the band had been selected. Right. What Jack Douglas says here, uh, well, <laughs> okay. Uh, again, it makes for a better story, I guess. Then, recording Double Fantasy, the picture of Sean up on the speakers. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but again, they don't tell... Some of the stories that I would have liked to have been told, uh, you know, Paul Goresh is completely omitted. I would have liked his story to come up in here. That's a typical John Lennon and New York City story. That A, that John was not all that technical, and one of the fortunate things about New York City was that he could call and get somebody to fix something at any hour of the day or night. 
And well, I mean, that led to Paul Goresh coming up to the Dakota and eventually becoming quasi friends with John and John allowing him to stay close, but not too close and, you know, take photos. A lot of which ended up as part of the double fantasy and milk and honey packaging. Right. I would have liked some of that to show up here. Yeah. Then it goes into the reviews. Again, I'm not so sure how much I completely believe it that, uh, that, oh, well, John was happy because they like Yoko stuff, but they called John stuff M.O.R. Well, I think that was accurate. I wonder whether John was able to be that cavalier about the reviews of his stuff. I mean, particularly what they say there. And he was saying that they're calling Yoko's music interesting and avant-garde. And he said they're referring to his music as more M.O.R., like middle of the road. And he said, that's okay because this album's going up the charts and we're going down the middle of the road to the bank. (laughs) That didn't sound completely like John Lennon to me. Hmm. Maybe. One of the things that's on this that I like, the last song they play is the uh, Watching the Wheels, but it's done with John and the guitar. And I really liked it. I liked it better than what they ended up with. And so you think he was going more to that kind of M.O.R. sound. It is interesting. And I won't disagree completely with it, but I also don't know that John would have really been happy. I mean, the, the reviews were pretty harsh. Pretty quickly, because of what happened, all of that kind of gets backgrounded immediately. Yes. For the month between when uh, Starting Over came out and then, well, that day, there were a number of John Lennon's just regurgitating himself. And while we don't know if we, whether we like it or not, Yoko Ono was at least trying to do interesting things. And, you know, you have to know it is in the middle of New Wave. Yes, which was a big deal. And, you know, they played the interview with John where he talks about if the kids like it, great, but I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to people my age, you know, the 30 year olds and the 40 year olds. And that's who I'm writing for. And so that is in some ways a defense of his presentation because he was being criticized for it it being too smooth, I guess would be the word. And there was interest in some of Yoko's work. And the terrible thing is the record they were working on the night that it happened was Walking on Thin Ice. And that's a killer track. Well, and that would become Yoko's hit. I mean, you know, or one of Yoko's hits. She was a big thing on the dance charts for a good long while. Yes, I think had John lived, he had a vision of how she could fit in. And that's what he wanted. Double Fantasy would have happened. Milk and Honey would have happened. And then there's the tour, which is briefly brought up here. I mean... He was planning a world tour. It it was December. He was finishing the second half. In January, he was going to finish the second half of the album. It was meant to be a double album, but there were so many songs that hadn't finished the second half, the Milk and Honey part. And... um, he was going to do that in January and then get a band together in February and make some videos to promote the albums. And by the end of March, go on a world tour. And he was actually looking forward to going back to England. He said he hadn't visited there in years. He was looking forward to seeing his friends, to seeing his Aunt Mimi. He really was looking to start over and to go back and, and rock and roll. We all know about that, but again, that's not really a New York story, is it? <laughs> right. 
the story about the tour that never happened was, well, he wanted to get on a boat and go up the Thames and uh, make his way to England that way. <laughs> Always thinking that, lad. Yeah, the, the funny part, the last few clips of the of the uh, TV special has John basically being a, a sushi salesman. <laughs> he talks about ordering sushi and... Because apparently the band had originally decided they wanted deli or something. Deli, and then, yes. Then everybody starts changing their order. You want to change it? Cancel all the deli orders. Get enough sushi for... Two, three, four orders? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they do manage to turn things around nicely from the... The heaviness of... Of the day. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen a lot of footage of, of the crowds that day, but the singing of Give Peace a Chance that they played on this just hit me different than before. I mean, I can see how that would have been awful for Yoko. After all my complaining, that was a really nice New York moment. My bedroom was right next to that street, and all night I'm listening to John's songs. It was very, very painful for me. It kind of reminds me of, you know, all the COVID stuff and the people of New York going out and banging their pots and pans every day. It's like, yeah, right. they got it. The city accepted both John and Yoko as New Yorkers, and we're going to do whatever they could to make things as acceptable as possible. Then in the play out, we get a little bit of John doing Blondie, <laughs> making up words about ants in his pants. I like that. That's kind of fun. Right. There's also another really nice moment, and I wasn't sure I'd ever heard the story. Welcome to Bermuda. We just had somebody go down the vault and bring up everything that they, they could get their hands on. And we just sat in the room and listened to music. Um, and that was, that was our goodbye. Jack Douglas and Yoko going in and just listening to all the the studio tapes. Yeah, that that was the kind of the way that they memorialized John. Yes. And that would have been hard and healing. Well, I mean, you know, even from a distance it's sometimes hard for me to put on just those bootlegs, those tapes and it's like, wow, uh, this is kind of it just gives you a feeling. Yeah. To be there then at that time, it's like Yee, uh, I get it. Into the very end, uh, the very end, he he does a little dedication. That that really was something that he liked to do was those fake dedication to to Mrs. Higgins of Durban, Australia. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, again, thinking of get back, and when John would occasionally decide to go to the mic and make dedicate it to somebody or something. Yeah, all those home tapes that he would do little fake little radio shows and readings. 
that's the end of it. I guess talking about it, I'm a little bit less hard on it, but it is still very much... I'm of mixed feelings about this documentary. It's well done. It has a lot of really interesting new or relatively new things, things that are not common even in those who collect outtakes and such. Yeah, I'd recommend it. I would as well, particularly if you're less familiar with the story. Yeah. It's the good stories that you hear about these sessions. But let's give it maybe 60 to 70% on the truth. (laughs) And I even go a little bit lower when you talk about the number of things that got omitted here. I would not be as tough on it. Not 60% out of 100, but I think it's only telling about 60 to 70% of the truth. Right. Good story? Well, we're, we're going to kind of push aside the truth in favor of the good story. And only where they collide, where we can make an emotional point of Yoko just being devastated by what happened on the night Nixon won, are we going to completely tell you the truth? Again, that maybe from the perspective of 2023 versus 2010, 13 years ago, now, especially as you know, we know a lot more. Well, as I said, second generation of this will be kind of interesting where we kind of go through and go, okay, this is what we we know now. <laughs> and we still are going to have to wait for... You think we're going to have to wait for Yoko to pass? No, we're going to have to wait for, for Mark Lewis's books. <laughs> well, on the Beatles side of things. Yeah. I mean, we, we have Leninology, and Leninology is a great book, but that's more of an encyclopedic look at what happened at the time. Right. If you want to know details about some event, you can go look it up in Leninology. Someone's going to have to write it as a narrative. Yeah. Yeah. A biography. A two-volume Alan Cozen-esque version of the Lenin story. (laughs) So what we're suggesting, folks, is that if you're a writer, jump in because the industry is bumping. If you're really looking for John, let's say, from the Dennis Elsis interview through to 1980, uh, read Ken Womack's John Lennon 1980 book. That is very good. And I guess the other issue with telling John's story truthfully is Fred Seaman's a crook, but he's a crook who tells a lot of things truthfully. You know, a lot of the hmm. real honest details we get about John's life from 75 to 80 come from Fred Seaman. Right. But I never know what to believe and what not to believe from Fred. (laughs) Makes it tough. (laughs) It's just that it turns out that he's told a lot of stories which have turned out to be absolutely true. But he also is a, you know, self-serving SOB. (laughs) As we all are, I suppose. (laughs) Right. Well, someone will write that book. You know, I've got a, a cartoon that I cut out from, I think, The Post a person walking by a bookstore and in the bookstore window was a new book that was called notes from John Lennon's refrigerator. <laughs> we got the Lennon letters book, but, <laughs> but not the notes. <laughs> even that is kind of a different thing. And, and if you, if you haven't looked at the Lennon letters book recently, that does go down to things like we got post-its that John, was writing and sticking up on the refrigerator for various people that ended up in the Lennon letters. It's right. literally every bit of correspondence that uh, they could find. Right. So, 
Anyway, I'm probably a little bit harder on it than you are, but I, I agree. It's it's a good documentary. It's well done. It tells its stories in an interesting way, but it's far from complete. And, well, I think it's probably sorely misnamed. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Needs a better name. Yeah. You know, Lennon, Lennon 1973 to 1980? Sure. Great. That works. <laughs> but Lennon NYC, when you don't talk about all the great New York stories there are kind of kind of a misnomer. <laughs> right. But then that one would have had to have a whole chapter on LA cut out. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> okay. Good enough. So we will be back next week. Not talking about the McCartney bio unless uh, we find some new information on the release date. Okay. We'll figure something out. Good enough. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. when people watch you know biographies and there's always a tendency to make people look a little you know more profound and bigger than they actually were in life it makes for hotter television the fact is with John there wasn't a distinction between show business and reality between John Lennon the public persona and the guy who you would meet and spend time with if he invited you up to the house to talk with of the 2,000 people I interviewed, he was the one where there was no distinction. Zero. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but the scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. 